0: This is An Economy of One, your beacon guiding you through the turbulent waters of the political economy. It's life, liberty, and the pursuit of self-reliance. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Greetings and welcome again to An Economy of One.
1: I am your host, Gary Rathbun. Our website, economyofone.com, one.com as is our Facebook, An Economy of One on Facebook. Joining me now is Representative Jim Jordan from the 4th District of Ohio. He recently, along with other members of the Freedom Caucus, led the fight against the American Health Care Act, the administration's solution to replacing Obamacare. He serves on the House Judiciary Committee and the House Oversight and Government Reform Committee where he serves as chairman of the Subcommittee on Economic Growth, Job Creation and Regulatory Affairs. On a personal note, he's a four-time high school wrestling champ in the state of Ohio and a two-time NCAA <laughs> wrestling champ. I, I got to tell you, Congressman, my uh, business partner is from the Dayton area, yeah. and uh, he remembers classmates of his uh, wrestling you and your brother. Oh, golly. Oh, golly.
2: That's a long time ago, Gary. <laughs> I
1: well, I'm, I, I, I uh, get the impression from your work on the Freedom Caucus that the competitive spirit is still there. <laughs> and uh, doing what's right for uh, the citizens of Ohio is, the, is still there. Uh, first of all, tell me a little bit about uh, the Freedom Caucus and what uh, well, issues you had with the American Health Care Act.
2: Well, the Freedom Caucus is, is real simple. Um, is a group of individuals who our mission statement. We talk about the countless number of Americans who feel like Washington has forgotten them. Our mm-hmm. job is to remember them and fight for them. And in simple terms, what we try to do is... Um, pretty basic. We try to do exactly what we told the voters we were going to do when they elected us and gave us the privilege to come serve them. And it's, it's nothing more than that. There's about 30 of us, uh, a little more than 30 of us, um, and we're committed to that cause. And, and as, it, as it applies to the health care bill, look, we want to get rid of Obamacare. Um, it's been a central issue in the 2010, 2014, and 2016 campaigns. Uh, We told them we were going to get rid of it. Unfortunately, this bill that was brought forward, and we've debated now for the last five, six weeks, doesn't accomplish that. And so we said we can do better. Mm -hmm. And um, that's what we've been focused on trying to do, is take this bill and prove it so that it's consistent with what the voters elected us to do.
1: Now, in the past, when President Obama uh, was in the White House, uh, there were quite a few, a significant number of uh, pieces of legislation sent to him repealing uh, the Affordable Care Act, knowing uh, I'm sure that he was going to veto it, why why is the American <laughs> Health Care Act so different than those replacement or repeal bills in the past?
2: That is the that's the. Brazilian dollar question, Gary. <laughs> we, we had passed a clean repeal just last year. In fact, I reintroduced that bill a few weeks ago and said, why don't we just go back to that? After all, every mm-hmm. Republican except one in the House voted for it. Why don't we go back to that? Well, The one thing that drives voters crazy is when you campaign one way, you when, when it doesn't necessarily count because we knew it wasn't going to be signed by President Obama, we, it was good enough to vote for them. But then once you actually get in power and once you actually get elected, oh, right. we got to do something different. That drives voters crazy, and it should. And so, what we have said is, look, let's let's do what we told them we were going to do. Let's repeal it. Let's make sure the bill that we pass, at a minimum, will bring down premiums for middle-class families. Uh, and that's what we've been focused on trying to do. Uh, and we're going to continue to do that. And like I said, I think we'll get there. I really do. But we need a little more work right now.
1: Now, I, I read recently in the last uh, 24 hours or so that the the Freedom Caucus is. Uh, uh, for lack of a better phrase, back at the negotiating table. They, they, they're addressing yeah. uh, Vice President Pence is, is talking to you about some issues. What's, if you can share with me, uh, what, what's, what are you looking at? What's changing?
2: Well, the first thing I'd say is we, we, it's not that we're back at the negotiating table. We've never left. We've right. always been trying to take this bill and make it consistent with what the voters elected us to do. There's some, there's some key regulations, Obamacare regulations, that we feel drive up the cost of insurance. We're trying to make sure those get repealed. Uh, and we're going to continue to do that. So we've been negotiating all along. The White House gave us an offer and said, "Look, uh, how about we we, we create, create this waiver concept where states can apply to get out of the uh, some of the key Obamacare regulations and get freedom to insurance companies operating in their states, and, and therefore freedom to uh, to middle-class families, and and their premiums will actually become more affordable." So we're working on that. Um, I think we're going to get there, as I said before, but still we've got some uh, negotiating and some work to do.
1: That being said, are you fairly optimistic that uh, within the very near future we're going we're to have something I, that, that the people will want and understand?
2: I am actually, Gary. Uh, yeah, I mean, I always say, you know, we're Americans. You can't help but be optimistic. I mean, mm-hmm. we're the, this is the greatest country ever, and, and yep. I think we're, I think we'll get to a solution. But like anything else in life, Getting something done right is never easy. It always takes time. It always takes effort. It's just the way the good Lord made things. So we got some some work to do, but I I do think we'll get there. Um, and and as I said, accomplish what the, what will let us to accomplish, which is to get rid of this law, and bring down uh, bring back affordable insurance. I, I I think for so many Americans, we've forgotten what a marketplace looks like since right. we've been with this Obamacare now for so many years. Uh, we want to get back to a marketplace in in uh, for for consumers in healthcare and consumers purchasing uh, health insurance.
1: You know, you mentioned that that things take time, and that's, you know, I, I'm from Ohio. You're from Ohio. You understand the Midwest mentality. And and one of the things that that uh, many of our listeners has have mentioned to me, and, and I agree with, why does it one? Why does it take so long, and why? did the the media, well, I kind of know why the media, but why did so much of the information out there say, well, tax reform's dead now because we didn't pass uh, a health care bill? Yeah. You know, explain a little bit the the bureaucracy or the process to us.
2: Well, I mean, I I think uh, a a couple things. One, um, the way the budgetary rules work in in Congress, it will help us to be able to do tax reform if we can actually do this health care repeal bill first. Uh, that, or not this health care, but this Obamacare repeal bill first, because mm-hmm. it, it'll it'll lower the baseline, and because you get rid of some of the or get rid of almost all of the Obamacare taxes, uh, that will help us when we got to do tax reform later. So there is a there's a a good reason for wanting to do this first, and in, in the sequence that was established. Um, uh, second, I think just general process, the process that was used on this bill alone, the the health care bill, uh, I think was problematic. Remember, it was about six and a half weeks ago. This bill was. was after being hidden away, we were told it was a binary choice. There were no real hearings with actual witnesses who, who come in to testify, unless is the normal case when you have a piece of legislation. It was uh, no amendments were accepted, and, and uh, the, the committees that actually marked up the bill. And I think that's a problem. I mean, it'd been nice actually to have some doctors come in and talk about this legislation. Maybe some insurance companies, maybe some independent insurance agents, and you know sure. people we know in our communities. It'd been nice if we had hospitals talk, or maybe just regular families in and actually testify about the legislation. Um, so when you have that process, I think it leads to bad policy, which makes for bad politics. And yeah. we know it was not good policy and frankly not good politics by the simple fact that only 17 percent of our fellow citizens support this health care reform bill that was brought forward by our leadership.
1: You know, I'm glad you brought that up. That, that leads me to my next question. If only 17 percent of uh, the American people supported this, surely uh, uh, Speaker uh, Ryan knew that. Surely everybody in, in Congress knew that. Why, why, why didn't that matter to them? Why didn't they say, hey, wait a minute, nobody likes this. Uh, maybe we well, shouldn't do this?
2: Well, it mattered to us, and it matters to actually some moderates as well. I mean, when you have a piece of legislation like this, when it's brought forward that doesn't fully repeal Obamacare. Even some of the supporters said it was Obamacare-lite, Obamacare in a different form. Mm-hmm. Uh, when, when you had uh, a piece of legislation that doesn't bring down premiums, even the Congressional Budget Office said premiums are going to continue to rise for the next three years. And when you have a piece of legislation that both conservatives and moderates uh, don't support and have concerns with, that's a problem, and all that together underscores the fact that only 17 percent of the American people thought it was a piece of legislation worth uh, worth supporting, so I, I tell people: by the, we opposed it. We actually, I think, helped did the country a favor by opposing mm-hmm. a piece of legislation that's not consistent with what we were supposed to do and what we were sent there to do. So let's get back to work. Let's do the responsible thing, and let's fix it. And that's exactly what we're trying to do.
1: You know, one of the things that, that troubles me a little bit, uh, actually it troubles me a lot, and, and uh, several of my listeners have have pointed it out, was the the uh, attack. On you uh, specifically, and other members of your your Freedom Caucus, where you know, and, and the White House, and I'm a little disappointed that President Trump would would say something like this, that you know, essentially calling the the Freedom Caucus the enemy, and we have to campaign campaign against them and defeat them in in 18. Um, that that's that's a little disturbing to some of us here in the flyover country. I mean, how do you deal with the politics of that?
2: Well, I mean. Well, it, it is what it is, and, and I, I've always said that my background is in wrestling, you mentioned at the top of our interview here, um, competition is a good thing. And if we get competition, you know, God, God bless us ever competing against us, we'll go out and we'll run a race and we'll let the, the folks in the 4th District of Ohio decide. And, and if my colleagues get the, the same thing, then their their voters in their respective districts will will make that decision. But I don't worry so much about blame and statements and tweets and all that. What I focus on is... The actual bill itself, the legislation itself, the four corners of the document. What does the bill do? What doesn't it do? Mm-hmm. And when you analyze it that way, as I said before, this bill doesn't fully repeal Obamacare, this bill doesn't bring down premiums, this bill doesn't unite the party, and frankly doesn't unite the country, as evidenced by the fact nobody likes it. So let's, let's, let's do a better job. And that's all I'm focused on, um, and I think if you do that, you do things right, typically the competition and the politics are, will work out okay.
1: Now, uh, real quick, finally, uh, Congressman, it's uh, President Trump's been in office, I don't know, 80 some days or around 80 days. Uh, we've seen some positive things in the, yeah. the economy and in the in the country. We've seen some positive action being taken uh, as a congressman in the in the fight all day, every day. Uh, how do you feel about the change in direction that the President Trump is is bringing in from uh, the the White House and, and uh, are are you more optimistic?
2: You can start with Monday of this week, Neil Gorsuch. Yes, I mean that was huge. Yes, think about the campaign last fall. in, in many ways, it was really about that one issue. Who is going to go into Antonin Scalia's seat? What is going to happen with the Supreme Court? Are we going to have someone who shares our values, who believes in the Constitution, who is going to interpret the Constitution the way we think it should be interpreted, um, the way the founders believe it should be interpreted, who, who believes in the sanctity of human life and some of these key values? Uh, that was huge. So that, that's, a, that's a great step in the right direction. Um, Jeff Sessions running the Justice Department. Mm-hmm. The Justice Department under the previous administration with Eric Holder and Loretta Lynch was political. You cannot have a political justice department. You got to have an attorney general who's focused on justice and administering the law, not someone who's focused on politics. So that is a huge step. That is very positive for our country. And then some of these key executive orders on the regulatory front, on hiring freeze, on uh, stopping any new regulation. If you create one new one, you got to get rid of two old ones. All that is good for economic growth. So those are the positives that I think the American people. What? like to see, and, and of course the commitment yeah. to securing our border right. uh, is, is critically important as well.
1: You know, just real quick, and this may not be a fair question, so I apologize uh, uh, ahead of time, but um, I, I kind of feel good about uh, what we did in Syria and our leadership in in uh, uh, chemical weapons and, and that kind <laughs> it, of stuff in the world as well. Do you?
2: Yeah. I mean, look, the previous administration, red line, and oh, that's crossed with the new red line, oh, that's crossed with and. and The respect of the United States was, I think, greatly diminished under the previous administration. And here you had some dictator do something as evil as they did with chemical weapons, and the president responds right away.
1: No question. We've been speaking with Congressman Jim Jordan from the 4th District of Ohio and uh, one of the founders and leaders of the Freedom Caucus. Congressman, uh, I can't tell you what an honor this has been for me. I uh, really appreciate you giving us a little you of your time. I know everybody's tugging at your sleeve. Thank you for being part of the Freedom Caucus, and thank you for representing us. I appreciate
2: yeah, it. Yeah, pleasure, pleasure, mine. It's good to be with you. Take
1: care.
0: Thank you. An economy of one with Gary Rathbun. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. You know, I think it's probably
1: been uh, overdone this week as far as the uh, forced removal of a passenger from a uh, United Airlines flight and the response from the company and the back and forth and particularly enjoyed the internet memes that people have put up there. I mean, it's amazing how creative millions of people can be given a forum to express their thoughts but in in looking this whole incident I, i i thought of a couple of things you know the airlines essentially has a government sponsored monopoly they got rules that essentially try to take away all of your constitutional rights the minute you step into the fuselage they think they can do whatever they want say whatever they want force you to do whatever they want And I think what they're going to do is they're going to find out that, you know what, people with video on their phones, um, they can't really do what they want to do. I wouldn't surprise me if they start banning the use of uh, cell phones in the fuselage, period. Not just in the air, but uh, they don't want any of their activities uh, taped. So it wouldn't surprise me if they tried that but it also wouldn't surprise me if congress started changing some of the rules taking some of that power away from the airlines the man that got drug off from united uh, airlines is going to sue he's going to sue for millions he'll probably get millions and united will pay millions without admitting any guilt or wrongdoing or anything like that it did bother me quite a bit on a couple fronts one not enough people stood up and prevented that from happening they voiced their opinion but they didn't block the thugs that drug this man off the airplane the other thing that bothered me was some people in the media looked into this man's past and yeah he's he's not necessarily who you would want as a role model necessarily he's had some issues in his past some convictions some i don't know behavior that some of us might not agree with But that doesn't take away from his constitutional rights. So what if he's had a legal issue or a conviction of something in his history? Does that give up your constitutional rights? Would it give up yours? I'm not willing to admit it. Give up mine. I think that uh, uh, this man has all the rights afforded to anybody, regardless of our history. All of us have a history that uh, we, we don't uh, necessarily say we wouldn't change aspects of. But I'm not going to give up my constitutional rights. I'm not going to let some thug grab me by the collar and drag me out. I think there's going to be some, some serious changes here. And I can't help but uh, relate to other government-sponsored monopolies in this situation, government health care, for example, what if they need your bed? They're going to drag you out, put somebody else there. This is not the first instance on an airline of somebody getting forcibly removed so a higher priority passenger to the airline could have that seat. Changes need to be made. Changes will be made. And I got to tell you, if United Airlines would have offered a thousand, two thousand dollars for volunteers, they'd have saved a lot of money than what they're gonna spend now. Coming up next, Commander Kurt Lippold, former commander of the USS Cole will be joining me. Talk to him
0: next. Gary Rathbun, an economy of one. Back to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun.
1: Joining me now is Commander Kurt Lippold, United States Navy, retired. He was a commanding officer of the USS Cole when it came under suicide terrorist attack by al-Qaeda in the port of Aden, Yemen. Because of the rigorous training he led daily as commander, he and his crew distinguished themselves by saving the American warship from sinking. He's author of Front Burner, Al-Qaeda's Attack on the USS Cole, Currently, he serves as president of Lippold Strategies, LLC, a consulting firm specializing in executive leadership development and long-range strategic planning. Commander, welcome back to An Economy of One.
3: Thanks, Gary. Glad to be back.
1: I appreciate you taking a little time with us. I, I see you all over the place. Obviously, you are the go-to guy when something happens in the Middle East. And, you know, this weekend – President Trump fired off some or ordered to fire off some Patriot missiles into Syria. Give us your first impression of that. I got a lot of peripheral questions, but what was your first thought?
3: The first thought was given that Syria had been proven to use chemical weapons against their own people. And the fact that we only fired uh, 59 missiles in I thought it was a very proportional and appropriate response Mm -hmm. to send a clear signal that that type of weapon will not be tolerated. It's a violation of international law.
1: My first thought was, before I read anything, I just saw the headline, my first thought was, we don't need to go into another theater for war. And then as I read things and started digging in, I saw the, the chemical weapons thing, and so many thoughts came to mind, but... I forget who it was. I can't remember his name. He was on Fox the other night and he said, we're not the world's policemen, but we need to be the world's referee. And when it comes to those chemical weapons and and that kind of international abuse like that, that's really our role, isn't it?
3: Well, I think what a lot of people were concerned about, especially some of the Trump supporters, is, oh, great, he's falling victim to just the typical mainstream warmongering wing of the Republican Party, you know, the military-industrial complex. Mm -hmm. But you need to take a step back at it. And, you know, President Trump ran on the dictum of, you know, make America great again, and it's going to be America first. In this case, while it may be difficult for some to realize, it actually was America first. Because if you allow any nation to use those weapons and do nothing, you're in fact legitimizing the use of that weapon. And then what are you going to do if those nations begin to use it on American troops in the field? Mm -hmm. That is what you don't want to tolerate. So when a country uses them, We had a previous administration that drew a red line and regrettably did nothing, which really did a lot of damage to U.S. credibility around the world, versus President Trump who came in and said, you want to know something? It is in U.S. national security interests to react to the type of weapon that was used to draw that line in the sand and have consequences for using them. So I think in reality, this wasn't a play for a larger audience it in fact hewed right to his message which was a make America great first again or make America you know we take care of America first and make it great again because we don't want to legitimize those weapons
1: what message did President Trump in in this action what message did he send to the rest of the world
3: Well, I think there was a message sent at the tactical level that you can't use those weapons, but I think it was also a larger message that, hey, there's a new guy in town who is not afraid to draw a line, Mm -hmm. drive a hard bargain, and then react if it's not followed. If you think for one second that the Iranians weren't paying attention to this, or the North Koreans, or the Chinese, clearly it's sending a signal. That, hey, we're not going to tolerate rogue regimes using weapon of their choice or of making and that there won't be consequences for it. And when especially when you look at North Korea these days, the fact that that attack went down as the president is eating chocolate cake with President Xi from China, (laughs) I think was a very good signal to send because he, he kept the Chinese updated on what he was doing during dinner. And President Xi actually supported it because he felt that it was appropriate, it was proportional, and that we, in fact, do not want to have any nation use those weapons again.
1: Where does Russia's role come into this? I mean, I've seen some some articles and some headlines, and and it seems to me like a little bit of posturing, but I get the impression that we kind of— poked a uh, friend of Russia in the eye by doing this. Is Russia, did it hurt our relationship with Putin? Is is Putin going to do anything, or is it saber-rattling and, and a little positioning?
3: Uh, I, I think it's a combination of all that, believe it or not, Gary. I think when you look at it, yeah, it was somewhat of a backhanded slap at Russia because I think Secretary Tillerson had it exactly right. Russia said that they were responsible and that they would ensure that Syria would no longer have chemical weapons. When we showed and looked at the intelligence that showed the Syrians how they were uploading them, flying the routes, loitering over the target, dropping the bombs, and heading home, clearly that, was, that happened. And when the Russians saw it, in reality, I would view it if I were Russian as it's an embarrassment. And it's either, like Secretary Tillerson said, they're either complicit or they're incompetent. You said you got rid of their chemical weapons. Why didn't you?
2: Right.
1: Now, that being said, I mean, former Secretary of State John Kerry, President Obama, was this problem created under the Obama administration, or does it go back further than that?
3: I think it goes back further than that. If you look at Syria in the Middle East, it has been very unique over the past several decades, through multiple administrations, it seemed like there has always been like this bubble over Syria. Nobody wanted to hold them accountable for their actions. Nobody did anything when they attacked their own citizens. Russia had vested interest there because they used the warm water port out of Tartus, mm. And so everyone just kind of had a hands-off approach to Syria. And I think that right now, President Trump is looking at it and saying, look, I've got no preconceived notions and i'm not wedded to any past history we're going to do what's right because it's in the u.s nation our art the u.s national security interests that's why i think he reacted the way he did and i think over time you're going to see a much more articulate strategy be rolled out by him and his national security team
1: you know secretary of defense general mattis we we talked about him i think last time we chatted and What's his role? I mean, is he the quarterback here and advising President Trump on how to deal with this kind of stuff? I mean, is, is he the, the strategic guy?
3: I think what you've got are a couple things that are playing into this, Gary. Clearly, when the president was briefed on the chemical weapons attack on Assad's own citizen, he had a visceral and gut reaction. He probably turned at that point and said, what options are available to me right now to hold them accountable? At that point, General Mattis takes that as a tasker, turns to Central Command and says, or you know, European Command and says, okay, who is available? Where are they available? What options do we have? How quick can we do it? And what do we want as a target set to be able to send a very strong signal? They drafted it, as I understand it, from news reports. They went to the president five times saying, here's what we're looking at. That is normal procedure as you hone down to get right to the kernel of exactly what you want to do and how you want to do it. Mm -hmm. And then at that point, the president signs off and General Mattis issues an executive order. And the uh, military executes the mission. It's just that simple. The ramifications and everything else then fall into the lap, obviously, of Secretary Tillerson, the Secretary of State, who has to go to Russia, who has to hold the meetings, and we saw those going on today.
1: You know, something that occurred to me in reading about this, and it it was fairly refreshing, it seemed to me like the mission had a definition and a definition of completion, a definition of victory. I don't get that feeling in, in years past that the plan was put together with the end in mind like it is uh, now. You know?
3: I, I think you're exactly right, Gary. I think that, that previously the, it was kind of an ambiguous, amorphous, you know, mm-hmm. you need to define for the military what are the objectives. I mean, you don't use a military for nation building. You use a military to break things and kill people. And in this case, they executed the mission extremely well. And now we're dealing with the ramifications. But that's where the other instruments of national power now come into play. That's where diplomacy has a role. That's where economics has a role. If we decide we're going to sanction Syria and or Russia for their allowing this chemical weapons to attack to occur. So I think there's a lot of things. And even today, disappointingly, you saw... Russia veto a U.N. Security Council measure that would have allowed an investigation into the attack, and they didn't do that.
1: From your sources and your expertise, what damage was done to Syria? I I saw that General Mattis said about 20 percent of Syria's air force was destroyed. What do you know? I mean, what got blown up and destroyed there?
3: Well, I think it's fairly accurate. We aimed for the aircraft that participated in the strike. We took out the hardened bunkers. We also took out some of the support facilities on the airfield. And that's exactly what you want to do. Um, you know, as far as the what actually got hit... Hey, look, you know, if you remember back to the Gulf War, you had Baghdad Bob standing there in downtown, right. you know, Iraq saying, hey, there are no Americans here. Well, the reality is we were right at your back gate there, my friend. <laughs> and uh, so when you listen to what the Russians and the uh, the Syrians say, oh, they didn't do anything to us. Everything is fine. They only blew up a canteen and a couple of them uh, small uh, garbage dumps. Yeah. Well. No, we probably got a lot more than that, but they're unwilling to admit it because they, they do not want to admit that that weapon, the Tomahawk, is extremely capable, extremely flexible, and very accurate.
1: You know, I, I was talking to uh, uh, the gentleman who has the afternoon show uh, here at WSPD, and, and I told him I was going to have you on the, on the show tonight, and he says, well, nobody asks the question I want to ask. And I said, well, give me the question and, and I'll ask the commander. And his question was, I mean, you know, the, the missiles were, were Tomahawks were fired from uh, the Arleigh Burke class uh, destroyer, which I know uh, is near and dear to your heart. But his question is, what's what's it like for the crew uh, to be involved in a mission like that, to fire the missiles? Does does it create a, a high alert uh, of awareness of of that you may be attacked back at any time. I mean, what I know that training takes over, and and uh, our our men and women are extraordinarily professional and and do their jobs well. But what are you thinking about when when stuff like that when a mission uh, when you pull the trigger on a mission like that?
3: Well, it's one of those things, Gary, that you trained for, you prepare for, and when it finally comes, it's one of those things where almost a comm's going to come over the ship. Uh, The captain probably made the announcement on the 1MC, uh, the announcing system for the ship, telling Mm -hmm. the crew what they were doing. They had a period of a day or two to go through the missions, to practice them, to make sure they knew how to do them, make sure they knew any emergency procedures if there were a misfire or another problem with a missile, how to retarget if they got that on short notice from the National Command Authority. They went through that several times, and then it becomes zero hour. They maneuver toward and go into the launch basket. They make sure that there are no other ships around that would be in danger from the missiles firing and the boosters coming off. And then the countdown begins, and then it's showtime. They fire the missiles. They make sure they go off in a specific sequence because you want to take them on just slightly different routes so that they all arrive over and on the target simultaneously or near simultaneously so you have successive hits one after the other to carry out it so you have that element of surprise and the inability of your enemy to react. So it is everything – that a Navy ship practices for. And I'm sure those crews, when all was said and done, a cheer went up, they gave a thumbs up, high-fived, and then uh, probably got some sleep and uh, went back to work the next day.
1: And I know from from uh, reading your stuff and, and listening to other people, um, nobody really wants to have to pull that trigger. But if you have to, we got the best in the world to do it.
3: Absolutely. And at this point in time, I think the number one thing we have to do is make sure that we continue to support them. Yep. The Navy, like other, other services, have undergone four years of sequestration. Yep. We've had $200 billion cut from our budget, and this $54 billion that everyone says it's an increase. No, it is trying to make up for lost ground that unfortunately we had to live through. Yep. And while there needs to be some efficiency driven into the Department of Defense, you know, we still need to make sure those sailors get the weapons and the training and the equipment they need to do their job.
1: Yeah, no question. No question. We've been speaking with Commander Kurt Lippold, United States Navy retired former commanding officer of the USS Cole and author of Front Burner, Al-Qaeda's Attack on the USS Cole. Commander, once again, uh, this is a true honor for me. Really appreciate your time you're able to spend with us. I know there's a lot of people tugging on your sleeve, and uh, I appreciate you... Uh, letting us in the door and and pick your brain a little bit
3: absolutely my pleasure gary and thank you to all your listeners for their continued support of those who serve our great nation
1: thank you as well you have a good evening we'll talk again soon
0: an economy of one with gary rathbun To an economy of one with Gary Rathbun. I don't know if you
1: remember or not, but a year or so ago, there was a big, uh, big deal in China about a big dairy that uh, uh, would sell its cows and then lease them back, and then it would take the money from selling its cows and buy its own stock and keep the stock price up and that kind of stuff. But it used cows as collateral. Now I remember as a kid we had a a guy in our town that used to lease milking cows to uh uh different farmers so they didn't have to buy them. And uh uh he did all right. He, he made good money uh, leasing those cows. The uh milk producer, the dairy producer in in China, uh it was really all just a scam. And uh, uh, they were trying to prop up the price of their stock, that kind of stuff, and it all came falling down. And the stock price of that company dropped uh, more than ninety percent in just a few seconds once the 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 story got out. Well, you know, uh, my story is, is a fair story, a uh, fairly good story. The Chinese story is a bad story. Well, Zimbabwe, uh, and we've all heard stories about Zimbabwe and their currency and and their economy and that kind of stuff well now they have a new law that uh, some commercial banks will be forced forced to accept livestock such as cattle goats and sheep as collateral for loans to businesses it's called the movable movable property security interest bill in addition to livestock like this people will be able to put up their refrigerator uh tvs uh, cars that i can understand other appliances computers that kind of stuff all is collateral to borrow money from the bank nothing can go wrong there even in zimbabwe right well i've got uh i've got trillions of dollars of zimbabwe money sitting on my desk at this moment and you can buy a 50 trillion or 100 trillion dollar bill in zimbabwe currency i don't know for a couple of bucks on ebay now they're not using zimbabwe dollars anymore they use the american dollar rightly so uh, because it's a lot more stable Uh, the uh, zimbabwe dollar has hyperinflation attached to it i mean it's just gone nuts over there to the point where the currency is virtually worthless which is why you can buy it on ebay uh, for next to nothing. I find it interesting that so much of Zimbabwe's economic problems are due to the leadership. And the leadership has come out and forced the banks now to take this collateral as, uh, or take these uh, animals and appliances, that kind of stuff as collateral. Can you imagine borrowing money against a cow? The cow dies you're going to quit paying say, hey, come repossess your cow. You took it as collateral. Now, I don't I haven't seen the contracts. I don't know if there's a, a life or death clause in there or not. But uh, give it time. Give it time. Some congressperson in this country is uh, going to approve and mandate the banks uh, take livestock as, uh, as collateral. Uh, I can't wait. I can't wait. I'm going to start breeding cows now just for that purpose. We'll see what happens. I want you to have a great day. Be an individual. Be self-reliant. Be an economy of one. I'm Gary Rathman. We'll see you next time.
2: The views expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect the views of this station. Listeners should consult their own financial advisors or conduct their own due diligence before making any financial decisions. Private Wealth Consultants is an SEC-registered investment advisor.